0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Great to see you today, good to be with you today. As we get started today, I'm gonna put a word up on a screen and when you see the word, I want you to think about the first thing that comes into your mind when you see this word, God. What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you see that word? Now, now just hold that thought for a minute and let's think outside the walls of the church. Let's say we were to go down to downtown Greenville and we were to stop 15 random people on the street and, and ask them what is the first thing that pops into their mind when they hear the word God? What kind of answers do you think that we might get? I think after the answer, well, I don't believe in God, you might hear things like, well, I think God is like the force in Star Wars, the, the animating energy of the universe. Or somebody might say, well, I think God is all around us. Or another person might say, well, I think God is inside every one of us in in a way that we all have the divine spark. Or for someone from a Hindu background, they might say, well, there's not just one God. There's thousands of gods. Or someone might say, well, I think God is angry and demanding and judgmental or on the opposite end of the spectrum, somebody might say, well, I think God's like an old grandfather. He just wants me to be happy or 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 God is like, is kind of like a divine clockmaker and he 's created the world and he's wound it up and he's letting it all wind down on his own on its own and uh, s- somebody else might say, Why do you keep using the masculine pronoun he? like I think God's a she or maybe even gender neutral yeah, I mean If we go downtown on the street, we're going to find uh, all kinds of different answers, and part of the problem is that the word God in English is a generic word. It's not a specific word. And you could use the English word God to refer to any number of different deities in different religions, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Judaism or the many gods of Hinduism or some new age philosophy or something like that. Obviously, different religions have different ideas about God. But even within one religion, people might have really different views of what they think God is really like. So let's let's say that we ask 15 random people, Christ followers here in this church the same question. Like in this room or both auditoriums put together. If we ask them what comes to your mind uh, when you see the word God, what kind of answers do you think we would get from just people here at the church? I bet we'd be surprised at the variety of answers that people might have when it comes to their personal images of God. Because you see, when I put the word God up there on the screen, something came into all of our minds, every single one of us. So where do those images of God come from? Well, your idea of who God is has been shaped by a whole complex set of factors like the home you grew up in, the parents you had, the brothers and sisters you had, if you had brothers and sisters. Your idea of God was shaped by the church you grew up in or didn't grow up in and in your own reading of the Bible, if you read the Bible. And this is a big one. Your idea of God probably has been shaped by some of the good and the bad things that have happened to you. In your life, you see, our different views of God are the result of our own unique life experiences. Your life experiences heavily influence and shape your idea of who God is and what He's like. Now, listen to this Author A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us? And he's right, isn't he? I mean, our view of God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Because our image of God will color how we interpret the circumstances and events in our lives. Your view of God will color your view of life. And that being the case, we need to give careful thought and attention to how we think about God, and we need to root out uh, distorted images of God and replace those distorted images with an accurate scriptural understanding of who God really is, and so, yes, for a Christ follower, there is nothing more important than your image of God. Now, this is the fifth of an eight-part series that we're doing in the Old Testament book of Judges. And today we're gonna look at a man who had a deeply distorted image of God that came from his family and cultural background. And we are going to see how his distorted image of God led to tragedy. So grab your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to the book of Judges. We're in Judges chapter 10, And I'm also going to put a lot of the verses up on screen today. Now, if you've been following along with us in this series so far, as we begin reading, it's going to sound very familiar to you. Okay? Chapter 10, verse 6, we read again, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. In other words, the people are worshiping the gods of their enemies. Crazy. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. Actually for 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan divide also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we've forsaken you as our God, and we have served the Baals. Now, again, if you've been following along in the series so far, how familiar does that scenario sound to you? I mean, we've been here before, right? I mean, we just read the first three steps of this downward spiral that we've been looking at in the book of Judges. You remember the downward spiral? The downward spiral is, and it's repeated over and over again. It always begins when the people forget God and the story of what Yahweh has done for them. And as a result, they sin against the Lord by worshiping foreign gods, then God disciplines them by allowing uh, the, uh, them to be conquered and oppressed by nations, by the nations of the gods that they're worshiping. And then in their distress, the Israelites cry out to God, who shows them grace. and then Yahweh raises up a deliverer, and there's peace in the land for a while until they do, do it all over again. And it's on and on and on. That's the downward spiral we've seen in the book of Judges since it was outlined in Judges chapter two. And we just read the first three steps of the cycle here in chapter 10. They sin against Yahweh by worshiping foreign gods. Then Yahweh disciplines them by allowing the surrounding nations to conquer and oppress them. And then in their distress, the people cry out for God to save them. Now according to the pattern, what's supposed to happen next? I mean, well, what's supposed to happen next is we read a little line that says, and Yahweh raised up a deliverer for Israel. That's what happened every single time in the stories that come before this one. But that is not what happens this time. Something different happens. We're told that Yahweh doesn't do anything. He doesn't raise up a deliverer. In fact, he tells the people to go to the gods they worship and ask them for help. This time, God doesn't raise up a deliverer. Instead, we're introduced to our main character, who is by no means a paragon of virtue. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. That's a nice way of putting it. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov and a band of worthless rebels came to Jephthah and they went on raiding parties together. That's my paraphrase. That's our main character, Judge Jephthah. Definitely not a good good guy. I mean, he's an outlaw. He's the head of a gang of ruthless, reckless, Mad Max kind of cutthroats, and these are not the kind of guys that you would want to meet on a long stretch of country road up in the hill country of Tov. Now, okay, okay, I know what you're thinking, and you've been thinking this since day one because of how I've just bashed every judge except Othniel. So I know you're. through this series, we've looked at men like Gideon and Barak and now Jephthah and then Next week, Samson, and we've been saying that all these men are, 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 are pretty much Canaanites. None of them are faithful, godly, Torah-observing Israelites. And yet, look at how the author of Hebrews describes them. Hebrews eleven thirty two. 32. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets. By faith, these men overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and they received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength, and they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. So, how do you make sense of that? Like, I mean, the book of Judges definitely does not paint pictures of these men as great men of faith, just the opposite. Barak and Gideon were cowards. Jephthah is a ruthless outlaw, gangster, who, as we'll see, ends up making a stupid vow that cost him the life of his only child. And then in chapter 12, which we're not going to look at, but in chapter 12, he tells uh, the author of Judges tells us that Jephthah goes to war against his own people. He kills 42,000 fellow Israelites. Not a good guy. And then Samson, oh, Samson is the worst. So how do you reconcile all this? Well, here's what you have to do. You, You must not read Hebrews back into Judges in a way that forces you to sanitize these corrupt Canaanized Israelites. No, you have to first read Judges and then from Judges interpret Hebrews 11. So how do we do that? You see, Hebrews 11 is saying this. God used extremely flawed people to do great things when they acted in faith. God used extremely flawed people to do great things when they acted in faith. Hebrews 11 is not a broad stroke commendation for the way these men lived their lives, it's not saying that the evil they did was good. No, Hebrews 11 is saying, when these men acted in faith, God did great things through them. That's the point of Hebrews 11. By faith, in other words, when these men acted in faith, God did great things through them. By faith, yeah, they overthrew kingdoms and put whole armies to flight. Yes, by faith, Gideon ruled with justice. Before falling back into his Canaanite ways, yes, their weakness was turned to strength, but that doesn't mean that they were faithful men. It doesn't mean they were faithful men. Long-term, long-life faithful men. So that's how you have to reconcile this. Now, okay, back to Jephthah, Judges 11. The author of Judges... Gives us a lot of detail here about Jephthah's growing up years, and he came from a, a dysfunctional family, no question. He had huge disadvantages stacked against him from the very beginning. We're told that his father was an Israelite, but he wasn't a great godly man. I mean, he takes up with, uh, and this is, this is what the word means, a Canaanite temple Prostitute, and let's just say Canaanite worship was pornographic, and let it go at that. So Jephthah doesn't—he doesn't fit in his own family. I mean, his half brothers make life extremely hard for him. They put him down, beat him down, and ran him out of town. And really, he didn't fit anywhere in the in the kind of tight knit clan tribal structure that ancient Israel had. So he's an outcast from the beginning, just because of how he was born and he's driven out from his family, and we're told he goes east to the hill country of Tov, which oddly means good. (laughs) He went to the land of good, very strange, and and that's where the outcast becomes an outlaw. A whole gang of worthless fellows, literally a whole gang of morally debased people, gather around him and make him their leader, so essentially Jephthah left his watered-down uh, Israelite past, and now he's the leader of the Canaanite hilltop mafia. Jephthah is a bad man. He comes from a bad background. He's got bad people around him. He's doing bad things. He's a bad guy. And yet the Lord's going to use him to deliver his people. Keep reading, 11.4. Verse 4, after a time the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, which probably no doubt his older brothers have grown up, I mean the whole town was named after his dad, so, so the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tov, and they said to Jephthah, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that's exactly why we've turned to you now, because we are in great distress and we need you. And And we need you to go fight with us against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if... You bring me home. He just wants to go home. If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your leader. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, great. The Lord will be a witness between us. If we do not do what we say we do, it'll be on our heads. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him their head and their leader. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. In other words, Jephthah and the elders of Gilead established and ratified a covenant before Yahweh at the watchtower in Mitzvah. Now think, who is missing from this story? Who's missing from the story? Well, Yahweh is missing. Yahweh's missing. Yahweh does not uh, raise up a deliverer. So the people take matters into their own hands, and even though they know of Jephthah's ruthless reputation, they ask him to be their leader anyway. And that leaves us scratching our heads. I mean, seriously, is Yahweh gonna use this guy to deliver Israel? I mean, can we trust this man? Well, what happens next is Jephthah sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites, hoping to negotiate a peace, but that doesn't go over so well, and, uh, and you can read this later on. But in this exchange with the king of the Ammonites, you, you, you see that Jephthah does know about the Lord. He does know the stories of how Yahweh delivered Israel in the past. Hold that thought. Verse 24. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Now watch this. Then the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzvah and Gilead and from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. In other words, he's raising an army here. Now something's gonna happen here and usually at this point in the story, Yahweh's spirit empowers a deliverer to save his oppressed people and that usually leads to something positive. But not this time. The best thing that ever happened to Judge Jephthah and the worst mistake he ever made came within moments of each other. Look at it. Right after the Spirit of the Lord empowers him for battle... Verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, I will dedicate it to the Lord and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah, he makes a vow to Yahweh, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in triumph, It will belong to Yahweh, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Jephthah bargains with God. He makes a vow. He wants to force Yahweh's hand here by offering a human sacrifice. He's trying to cut a deal with Yahweh. And and, and this, this is a serious deal in the ancient world. You never make a vow to a God that you don't intend to keep. And this vow, let's look at it a little more closely. This vow, look at it. He says, If I win, whatever comes out of my house when I return, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. That's kind of vague, whatever. But whatever comes out of my house can equally be translated, whoever comes out of my house. I mean,. Y'all seen seen enough movies, movies like set back in medieval times or maybe back in Roman times. And, and picture the scene in your mind, a king is coming back victorious from battle. He has his armies behind him. And when he comes through the city gates, who comes flooding out of their homes to greet the victorious king and to celebrate with him? Who comes out? Like old Bessie the cow? No, to move for the victorious king and his army? You know, like, mu-ray, I know, that's really, really bad. That shouldn't be on video. But um, no, it's not animals that come out of the house. People come streaming out of their house dancing and singing. Yay, the king, he's back, he's won. And they're all celebrating this great victory. Now, some very good commentators just can't bring themselves to believe that Jephthah was vowing to make a human sacrifice to Yahweh. I mean, after all, how does that fit with Hebrews 11, right? But think, Jephthah is not a good person. He hasn't been hanging out with good godly Israelites most of his life. He he doesn't really know Yahweh. Oh, for sure, as I said earlier, he knows about Yahweh. He knows the stories about how Yahweh delivered Israel in the past, but he doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know what Yahweh is really like. Make no mistake about it. Jephthah is vowing to make a human sacrifice to Yahweh if he gives him victory over the Ammonites. A human sacrifice to what God? To to the Lord? Are you kidding me? I mean, Yahweh explicitly outlawed a prohibited human sacrifice in in the contract that he made with Israel back at Mount Sinai. It was written down in the Torah. In Leviticus 18, 21, Leviticus 21 uh, to five, and in Deuteronomy, anyone who knew the Torah would know that Yahweh abhorred human sacrifice. So where did Jephthah get this idea that Yahweh would be interested in a human sacrifice? Well, think about the kind of person he is. Think about his background. Uh, think about what he's been doing with his life up in the hills of Tov, I mean, definitely not listening to a Bible teaching podcast up there. I mean, you see, even though Jephthah was half Israelite, even though he knew about Yahweh religiously and culturally, he's more Canaanite than anything else. And his Canaanite background is supplying him with the idea that all the gods are alike. And it was common practice in Canaanite culture and in Canaanite worship, and in Canaanite bargaining with the gods. If you want to leverage the gods in your favor, you give them a human life. And so Jephthah makes this vow to Yahweh, or I should say, to his distorted Canaanite version of Yahweh. And you have to wonder, like, who is he thinking is going to come out of his house? Like, some old decrepit servant that that he's, you know, he, it won't cost him anything, or like his crazy uncle Hiram you know, that, he de, that he despised? Like, who does he think is gonna come out of his house? Well, look what happens, verse 32. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. He crushed the Ammonites, de- devastating about 20 towns from Arar to an area near Manit, and as far away as Abel-Karamim. In this way, he defeated the Ammonites. Yep, he was strong in battle, He put whole armies to flight, verse 34. When Jephthah returned home to Mitzvah, his daughter came out to meet him, playing a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. This is the most God-awful thing you can imagine. Here comes Jephthah returning from victory, and here comes out of his house his Mr. Tambourine Man playing Mr. Bojangles Dancing Daughter and she's like, yay dad, you won, you won, you won. She has no idea that her power hungry father has just signed her death warrant. Look at Jephthah's response. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh my daughter, he he cried out. You've completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me. I've made a vow to to the Lord and I can't take it back. Do you see how this guy is so full of himself? I mean, even in his lament for his daughter, who is he complaining about? You have destroyed me. You have brought disaster on me. This is your fault. I made a vow and I can't break the vow. Not true. If he knew his Bible, if he knew the Torah, he could have broken his vow. If he had ever read or heard read, The book of Leviticus, chapter 27, verse four, he would know that he could pay 30 shekels of silver to a priest and say, I am so sorry, I made a rash, stupid vow that I need to break 30, 30 shekels of silver, done, vow broken, and paid for. But this is Jephthah that we're talking about. He doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know scripture. He has a deeply distorted view of the Lord, Look at his daughter's response, verse 36. And she said, Father, if you made a vow to Yahweh, you must do to me what you have vowed. For the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months because I will die a virgin, meaning I will never marry and have children. Now, this, is, this reads like a Shakespearean tragedy or something, like, like Romeo and Juliet, and she's this noble figure accepting the fate that the gods have aligned for her. And the only thing she asks for is, let me just go mourn the fact that I'm never gonna get married and have children. And we're sitting here and we're screaming, no, no, you don't have to do this. You don't, you don't understand the Lord. You don't understand Yahweh. He doesn't want this from you. Verse 38, you may go, Jephthah said, and he sent her away for two months. And she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never have children. And when she returned home, her father offered an animal sacrifice. No, her father kept the vow he had made that whatever comes out of my house, whoever comes out of my house, I will offer up as a burnt offering. He did that, she died, without ever marrying. This is is just awful. I mean, this is a terribly depressing story. But, we shouldn't be surprised, this is the book of Judges. Jephthah is a tragic figure. He has a deeply distorted understanding of who Yahweh is and what Yahweh is really like and he got that distorted image of God from his family and cultural background and it cost him big time. Now this is a different form of idolatry than anything we've seen in the book of Judges so far. It's not like Jephthah went off uh, into the hills and worshiped some pagan idol god. But the idolatry we see here is that he constructed a Canaanite version of Yahweh, which is the most deceptive and subtle kind of idolatry there is. In fact, I would say the worst form of idolatry is making the one true God into something or someone he is not. The worst form of idolatry is making God over into someone he is not. And so... The story of Jephthah and his deeply distorted view of God, it stands as a warning and a challenge to us. It challenges us to think about our own ideas of who God is, and it challenges us to think about where we got those ideas in the first place. Again, when I, when I put the word God up on the screen, something came into every one of our minds. Where did it come from? That's something. It came from our family, religious cultural background it's come from how we interpreted the good and bad things that have happened to us i think many times when we use the word god in english we always spell it with a capital g right we always spell it that way but i think we often assume that we're all talking about the same thing but that's not the case is it and because of that i think we all run the same risk that jephthah did In our culture today, in in Western culture, the word God has a huge load of baggage attached to it. Much of it is deeply distorted when we compare it to the God who has revealed himself in and through Jesus of Nazareth. In our culture today, in our churches today... We run the same risk that, J, that uh, Jephthah did, assuming that we know who God is and what he's really like, but do we really? And my concern is that in the church today, and even, even here at Fellowship Greenville, some of us have distorted images of God. And those distorted images of God can actually bring harm to our spiritual lives. So let's talk about that. What is a distorted image of God? Well, a distorted image of God is a lie that keeps us from knowing God as he really is. It's a lie that keeps us from knowing God as he really, really is. And that can lead to disappointment with God, or worse, it can lead to personal spiritual ruin. Mark it down, distorted images of God always disappoint. They never fail to fail us. Our distorted images of God color the way that we look at God and life. Even how we read the Bible. Our distorted images of God color how we view everything in our life. Now, there are all kinds of distortions, but here are seven of the most common. So, first there is the distant an impersonal God. This God is aloof and he's detached and cold and uncaring and disinterested in daily life. Maybe he's like the force in Star Wars. Maybe he's like the divine clockmaker who just winds everything up and, and stands back and watches the whole thing wind down. It's, this, is the, this is the God where you hear people say, well, I know God is out there somewhere, but he's just too busy running the universe to care about me. Colors everything in life. Then you've got like the lightning bolt God. This God is demanding and petty and hard to please, easily angered, just, just waiting for the chance to zap you when you step out of line and you end up living with feelings of fear and insecurity, feeling like you'll never measure up and that colors how you view life then, then uh, the God wants me happy God. The God wants me happy God. The highest priority is my happiness. Like, I know I really don't have biblical grounds for divorce, but I'm just not happy in this marriage and I just have to believe that God wants me to be happy and so I'm getting a divorce anyway. You see, this, this is, uh, it, it doesn't matter what God says in scripture. The pursuit of happiness is all important and so this is how you view all of life, or the uh, the the unreliable God. This this distortion is that God loves me one day, but He might not really love me the next. He might be mad at me the next. You just never you just never know. And maybe somewhere along the line, you lost a close friend or a, a family member, and it kind of messed you up. And you're like, Why would God let that happen? Like it just doesn't make make any sense. So now. You have a hard time trusting God to do the right thing in other areas of your life. Colors everything. Or the health and wealth God. I mean, your God is the God of personal achievement, the God of prosperity and success, the God who says something big and something good is gonna happen to you today. (laughs) Or if you're sick, this God promises to heal you, and if he doesn't, it's because you don't have enough faith So your faith is the bargaining chip for you to get healed. And then there's the uh, culturally relevant God. And this God is colored by the cultural issues of the day. A God colored by politics. So everything you view in life is colored by your view of politics. Yeah, ooh. Now he's quit preaching and he's gone to pilfering. <laughs> they used to say that in the Baptist church. Um, uh, uh, this is also this is a God that's colored by social issues backed by political agendas. A God who changes as culture changes. Like like uh, yeah, I, I know God says He created us um, male and female, but today political science tells us there's no such thing as male and female, and so our view of God changes as times change. And then there's the let's make a deal God of Jephthah. This is a God you can bargain with, like God, if you do this for me, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. It's a, this is a God you can manipulate, or you think you can manipulate and control by promising to sacrifice something that you consider extremely valuable. You see in this, here's the thing. You you might be able to recite and give mental assent to sound doctrine and the fundamentals of the faith, but your functional day-to-day image of God may be a distortion of the theology you profess, and that will radically affect how you live your life. Do you see why? Hosier said, "What you think about God is the most important thing about you." Question is, what is your daily image of God like? Every single day, we run the risk of adopting these culturally distorted versions of what the word God actually means, whether it's a God who is overbearing cosmic killjoy just waiting to zap you, or the God who's aloof and uncaring and uninvolved, or the God that just wants me happy, or the God uh, who never corrects me, or the distortion of God that I have to bargain with him to get what I need him to do. Every day we run the risk of being influenced by distortions like this that bear little to no resemblance of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. Years ago after one of my D-Men study times up in Wisconsin, I went with my friend who I mention every now and then, Chris Dolson. We went to an Episcopal church to hear a lecture given by the prominent New Testament scholar, Tom Wright. And he told a story I'll never forget and he's told this several times. I've heard that he said it in other places at other times. He said back when he was a chaplain at one of the colleges at Oxford University, every year he would meet with all the first year incoming undergrads uh, undergrads who were coming into his particular college. And he said that uh, quite often he would get into a conversation with a student and at some point the student would just kind of interrupt him and he or she would say, well, you know, I really do appreciate meeting with you and this is nothing personal but you probably won't be seeing me again because you see I don't believe in God and uh Tom Wright said he came across this so often that he he kind of came up with a stock response so he would ask the student huh well that's interesting would you mind telling me what God is it that you don't believe in And so the students would usually look at him kind of puzzled because because they mostly assumed the word God means the same thing. And he said that the students would go on to describe the God that they didn't believe in. And he said that the, the descriptions were remarkably similar from student to student. Because they described a being who lives up in the sky, who looks disapprovingly down on the human race, who intervenes occasionally to do a miracle or two, and in the end, he sends bad people to hell and good people go to heaven. And to this description, Tom Wright developed another stock response. He would say, well, I'm not surprised that you don't believe in that God. Neither do I. And he'd go on to say, you see, the God I believe in is the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. And he's quite different from the God that you just you just described, and he said he would leave the matter there hoping for, for another conversation about it. You see, I think the tragedy in our culture is that the God that many people reject is not the God revealed in Scripture, not the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The God that most people reject is some culturally distorted version of God that they picked up along the li- somewhere along the line. For a Christ follower, the word God has a very specific meaning. It's always bound inseparably with the story of the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you read through the New Testament, if you tune your, your eyes and ears and mind to this, you, you, you'll, you'll pick it up. Like, when you look at how the New Testament authors use the word God, which is a generic word in Greek, just like in English, but when you read through the New Testament, you find that the New Testament authors clearly define who God is, the God they're talking about. Let me, let me show you a couple examples so you get the idea of what I'm talking about. The first sentence from Paul's letter to the Galatians is this. This is a letter from Paul, an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Excuse me, Paul, what what God is it that you're talking about? Oh, oh, let me be clear. I'm talking about the Jesus-raising God, the God of the Jesus story. That's the God I'm talking about. Or look at the first sentences from 1 Peter. Peter says, all praise to God, the God, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who by his mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Excuse me, Peter, what God are you talking about? Oh, I'm not talking about the gods of Rome. I'm not talking about the gods of the Greek pantheon. I'm talking about the God of the Jesus story. The God who, in Christ, has given us new life. The God who, in and through Jesus, has ushered our world into a new era of hope when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's the God that I'm talking about. Look at the first sentences from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his character, of his very nature. Excuse me, unknown author of Hebrews. What God are you talking about? Oh, I'm talking about the God revealed in Jesus, who is the radiance, the outshining of God's glory, the exact representation of what God is really like. That's the God I'm talking about. And think about this. Jesus is the God who sympathizes with our weakness, He is not some distant, impersonal, uncaring God. Jesus is the God who forgives and extends grace. The God who's patient with us. He's not this lightning bolt God just waiting to zap you when you step out of line. Jesus is the God who is truth. Sorry, but your happiness is not his highest priority. Rather, he knows exactly what is best for you and me, even when his best is hard to accept. Jesus is the God who's faithful and trustworthy, the God who will never leave us or forsake us. He's not unreliable, definitely not unreliable. He's faithful and trustworthy. Jesus is the God who gives you everything you truly need. He's not some health and wealth and prosperity God of Western Christianity. Jesus is the God who's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's not some culturally relevant God who changes as the times change. And Jesus is the sovereign God who rules over everything from galaxies to governments. You don't bargain with a God like that, do you? And I'm just getting started. I mean, I could go on and on. And in your community groups, you ought to talk about this and, and, and see how... What we know of Jesus completely negates the distorted images of God that we have. For Christ's followers, the word uh, God means the God of the Jesus story. And when you read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see, again, that Jesus negates all the distorted images of God. Hear me, until you've met the God of the Jesus story, you haven't begun to understand what the word God really means. If our understanding of God doesn't lead us to the God of grace, to the God of unlimited forgiveness, to the God who will never love us less no matter who we are or what we've done, to the God who absorbed our sin, our death, our hell into himself on the cross, then you haven't understood the God revealed in Jesus. And if our understanding of God doesn't compel us to join the mission of the Jesus story with all that we have and all that we are, then we really haven't begun to grasp the God revealed in Jesus. We run the risk. Same risk that Jephthah did. This is a... This is a horrible, terrible, tragic story of Jephthah and his deeply distorted view of God—it's in the Bible as a warning and a challenge to us. It challenges us not to let our culture define the meaning of the Word of God for us. It challenges us to not let our past life experiences define the meaning of the Word God for us. It challenges us. Challenges us to let the story of Jesus transform and redefine our understanding of who God really is. Now, as the worship team comes up, I want to create a little time and space for you to pause and do a little reflection. And so you can see on the screen there's a very simple image of the cross. And I want to invite you to spend some time reflecting on who you think God really is. Maybe as you reflect, you might realize that your view of God has been influenced by one or more of the cultural distortions I mentioned earlier. And during this time of silence and meditation and reflection, let Jesus transform your image of God into a cross-shaped God. You may realize that you haven't truly allowed the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to exclusively define God for you. Or maybe you understand a lot of what I've been saying this morning and you just wanna take a moment and thank God for how he's revealed himself and who he really is through Jesus. So I wanna ask you to bow But I also want you to look at the screen so you don't have to close your eyes, but you can kind of just look at the screen and just give some time to think about what we talked about this morning.